Looking for the God story and news of the day. My Michelle Live News and Views. Here's Michelle. Hey, thank you for tuning in. This is News and Views, where we take on the news and the issues of the day. Unspin it and look for the God story. So what is the God story in a story that comes from the U.S. Senate, where there is a bipartisan Respect for Marriage Act that is gaining a lot of steam. We're going to talk about what is marriage exactly? And under what parameters does marriage really work for the couple, for the culture, for the nation? We're going to get it on with a view from Jerusalem. And now a view from Jerusalem with Rabbi Adlerstein. Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, he is with the Interfaith Center of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the the place where we look at differing faiths from Judeo-Christian perspectives and see where do we mesh? Where do we headbutt? It's interesting that oftentimes we get to the same God conclusion, Rabbi, and I think we're going to get there with this one with some interesting twists and turns. You're pulling a surprise on me, Michelle. You didn't tell me we're going to talk about about respect for marriage and about the nature of marriage. I can't say anything without clearing it with my wife first or I'm going to pay for it. Fair enough. And that's under that answers the question right there. What parameters does a marriage work? Look, tonight begins the fifth month on the Jewish calendar. Now, this month is a month characterized by a lot of sorrow and destructions. Both temples were destroyed. Many other tragedies occurred. And it's a time for introspection. But interestingly enough, it is also celebrated, if I remember right, the 15th is a marriage holiday. And I thought that was interesting concerning what we're talking about today. Now, I mentioned the Respect for Marriage Act. It was brought forth by Dianne Feinstein and some other Democrats, but also Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine. And this bill would effectively repeal the DOMA Act, the Discriminatory Defense of Marriage Act. They say it's the discriminatory. It was the Defense of Marriage Act was put out by the 104th Congress, recognizing marriage as a union between one man and one woman. And so we're going to talk about this and some a new study It was released talking about, we'll even pull it up on the screen. It was talking about something that is surprising, how a marriage really works and what it, how it works between marrying young, marrying your first and staying married. So interesting stuff. Ready to take it on, Rabbi? Sure am. All right, let's do this thing. First of all, I think it's really interesting, and maybe you'll find me a little controversial on this. As I talk about relationships, we live in a free society. I would love for everyone to believe the way I do about a lot of things, but they don't. And my feeling is, Rabbi, that if a person, adults make decisions based on who they want to reside with, who, how they want to conduct their romantic relationships. It really is their business in a free society. However, why is marriage different? And I say it's because, after all, marriage was an institution of the church. It was an institution of faith. 
So how is it that the government gets to dictate what a marriage is and the church doesn't? Just a thought. What are your thoughts? There's not very much that we can do about that, and I'm not so sure that we would want to. Remember, the uh, both a free society and religion itself is better off when it's not enforced by the government. So things in the past, which were very much to our liking, respecting traditional marriage between one man and one woman, it was comfortable to have society support that. In truth, when the, the recent move to dissociate ourselves from traditional marriage, I don't think you think I'm not sure, and I know that I don't think is going to be healthy for America in the long run, especially because of the study that, that you mentioned, which is the even though there are certain values that were introduced into human society by religious groups like the Judeo-Christian legacy, which very much does exist, even though it hurts people's ears to hear of such a thing. But we know that there is such a thing. And that marriage was one of those institutions that really was provided by the Bible. Nonetheless, it has worked so well for thousands of years that we would think that society could stand by it, recognize it for its values, recognize, as you say, the commitment between a man and a woman in marriage is not just, let's try it out for a couple of years and see if it works out. And if, it, if, it's, if it's pleasurable for the two of us, and let's experiment a little bit before and give ourselves a little bit of room and try it on for size. And if it doesn't work out, hey, we'll move on to the next one. Don't biologists tell us that men in particular, you're not going to hear in this, that men are programmed to get bored of their spouses at most every seven years. That's where our biology takes us. Let's go for it. But that is one of the messages of the Bible, isn't it, Michelle? That we don't go every place that biology takes us. That the Bible is about restraint at times. It's about focus. It's about commitment towards goals. And those things are part of religious marriage. And society has abandoned both the institution, even the right of society to say, I don't care where it came from. I'm Christian. I'm not Jewish. I don't care if it was the Jewish Bible that promoted it. But it has been for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 3,500 years, the best way of ensuring a safe environment for children in the next generation. And I'm out of breath. <laughs> and really, thinking about biology or survival of the fittest, if we're just a product of evolution, then you really do follow whatever I'd like. And if I, if killing and eating my neighbor benefits me, well, then that's okay, because we're just another animal. But we're not. And that's what the Bible teaches us. This is where it's easier for people to understand there is religious tradition called communion that Christians undertake or the Lord's Supper and some sects of the Christian faith. No more should the government say, okay, this is what it should be. You people drink wine or grape juice and you eat these little tasteless wafers, but it really should be, that's really exclusive. It should be able to be pizza and root beer. If someone wants communion to be pizza and root beer, it should be pizza and root beer. We are going to call communion pizza and root beer or 
beer and hot dogs. And we look, we can look at that and say, okay, that's a name. It's the church's thing. They want to call communion wafer, tasteless wafers and some kind of grape drink product. Then that's what they do. So why is it that we can't do that with marriage? Uh, that's, I assume that's a rhetorical question. I think but, it is a rhetorical uh, question. It's just the very definition of a rhetorical question. I guess the bigger question is, the Bible says what marriage is, and is not marriage something that was birthed from the very beginning, from a biblical worldview? Or am I just seeing this through the eyes of a faith girl? You might be, because I'm responding to you through the eyes of a faith man. But consider the fact that when the Bible was authored by God and delivered to man, the idea of monogamy was just so foreign to people. The idea of what marriage turned out to be in the Judeo-Christian world was such a revolution at the time. The, the idea of staying faithful, of not messing around with your neighbor's wife, with her permission, not with her permission, was so different from what people were doing at the time. It, revol it certainly revolutionized the idea of sex itself. And yet sex, science proves it out. Not just a question of power and asserting dominance over some, someone else. It didn't really matter which gender. That, that was the way it, it, it was looked upon even later in Roman times. But what you find in the Bible, the idea of one man and one, I can't say one man and one woman, the Bible did allow polygamy, but even there insisted on, on spouses being faithful to each other of rights of both of them and of the centrality of that unit for the sake of a child. Now, I would argue, too, that where the Bible makes concession, I think, for for polygamy, it made concession for slavery. It didn't endorse it necessarily. And I think there's a difference that our audience that might want to grab so onto. Important. I'm so happy you said that. Because there is this is a reality in the world. And so God set up protections for the vulnerable, right. for women who are in these polygamous relationships. Not nowhere in the Bible did a polygamous relationship work out well. I'll just put that out there. But God made concessions. He made concessions for slaves because they were vulnerable. If there is this is going on in society, you had better protect this slave. You better treat them as, as a brother. Or you, This was right. New Testament where, that I'm referring to in that particular regard. But this is where we're looking at biblical worldviews that actually work because, Rabbi, they seem to play out in science. We see that sexual pleasure is seems to weigh out in a monogamous marital relationship over long term. We see, seem to see that it works out best for children. And this new study that says that you marry young, you marry your first, you stay married. Now, the article cites a few observations, I think. This may be why, but I think there's much more to the story. I, th I think so, too, which is why I flagged it in the, in the first place. The article, the research, pointed out some factors that might predispose early marriage, particularly 
marriage of people with a connection to religion to survive better. And I can almost hear people smirking in the background. We're not talking about a magic bullet. We're not saying that God made it so easy for us that here's your do-it-yourself manual for, <laughs> for a wonderful life free of any problems whatsoever and marital bliss for the first 90 years of your marriage. If you know that, okay, we're talking about human beings and lots of people can get things wrong and do get things wrong. And there are people, even good people are capable of doing some evil things and do it all the time. But when you look at the probabilities, that's where this study really helps. Now, the people who conducted the study said, well, there are some predisposing factors. People who are connected to religious community actually have access to more people. They meet more people, but they have a support group. They're part of a community. They they're among people with common goals. And I have no, no question about it that those things are all true. But I think they're missing that I think they're missing the real point. And that that is the contrast. Using your word, which I would have used, frankly, had you not used it, but it was a great word, Michelle. Commitment. The ability of people to make a commitment. We're living in a world, not through anybody's fault, but everything about society has militated to people looking at themselves as the center of the universe of getting rewarded, just like rats in one of those Skinner boxes where you're holding your thing and you got to click. And if you don't click fast enough, you're going to miss something. And you are the center of the universe and marriage is a trial. You, you try, literally, you try the other person on for size for a couple of years and if it works out, then you say, let's see how it fits in with all my other important personal goals, where it fits in with my schooling and the development of my career and whether I want to live in a warm climate or a cold climate. And if it all works out, then you say, yeah, let's try it for a couple of more years and call it marriage. And if not, we can always wind up. You don't say this, but it's in the back of your mind because 50%, Michelle, 50% of new marriages fail and they have failed already for 20 years. Now, you would think every person who gets married says, it's not going to happen to me, but it happens to 50% of the people. Don't you want to do things or look for reasons why yours might have a better chance of surviving? And here, the religious mindset, in my mind, is so important. When people grow up thinking that they are answerable wow. to a higher power, and when that higher power has equal hold over the lives of two people, both of whom want to produce something like a new generation, like children, like giving souls in heaven an opportunity to come to earth and become human beings who can be servants of God so that ultimately this whole thing comes together and we wind up with the utopia on earth, which we don't Hope for, as I've said a number of times, we believe it's going to happen because God promised it from the first day that there is going to be a perfect existence in this world, but only when we all recognize God. When you have people who are willing to commit to a goal, not just my happiness, and let's see if I can pleasure you and you can pleasure me, and then everybody will be happy. No, everybody's not happy that way. Because if you're still at the center of the universe, you're not really capable of giving everything to the other party, to your spouse that you should be able to, and certainly not able for both of you to spend sleepless nights 
caring for those little young ones. <laughs> amen and amen. Because if I am only here to worship and to please myself, I cannot give another person who exists only to worship and please themselves the worship and pleasure that they expect and vice versa. However, if I'm here to worship and please and fellowship with this awesome God that we serve, I have this accountability daily. He convicts my heart and helps me to be a better person. Getting into his word, it's like this living thing that that enlivens me and helps me to be, hopefully, <laughs> to be a better person. And in that, I'm looking to please God my spouse is looking to please God. And together, we have something bigger outside of ourselves that keeps us accountable and brings us together and something that is beyond just human connection. And let's see how happy you can make me. And so much of this, of the ability to make the commitment is trust in God as active in our lives. We don't know how it's going to play out, but we do believe that when we invite God in, God is there in our lives, helping from behind the scene. We don't always understand the answers that he gives, and sometimes they're not so pleasant. But for the most part, for not for the most part, we can guarantee that there is a loving God behind, behind us and behind what we're trying to do. So therefore, can be the person who's not yet 38 and at the top of my career and able to make a commitment because... I don't need to have all the pieces assembled in front of me. I have that trust in God. Mm. So the attitude of people today is, of course, marriage is going to work out better if we've had 10 years cohabiting together and we're able to see, do we really manage to work out a routine where we're equitably sharing the chores and responsibilities of the household? And is it getting in the way or not getting in the way of our professional development? That, that whole approach basically says, I don't, I can't really make a commitment. I can't make a leap of faith. I can only, when I get everything that I need assembled on from my list of things that have to be there in the other person, then we can gingerly say, okay, it's time to call the florist and the caterer. But people <laughs> that married younger are saying, you know what? I believe in you. You believe in me. And both of us believe in God. We don't know what the future is necessarily going to bring, but we can bet on the future because we have a partner in life. And that is part of the commitment. That's the magic of marriage, which has made it work for families for thousands of years. It's the commitment to each other in the unknown. Today, everybody wants all the pieces on the board beforehand. And that's not the way you can play the game of life. So I think on a side note, perhaps society would be better off recognizing and being in defense of marriage between a man and a woman. That's marriage. Whatever you may be engaged in, whatever commitment level you might want to call it, whatever co kind of cohabitation, intimate relations that you may be engaged in, we can name that. You can have certain rights or domestic partner rights, but... 
there's something special about marriage being marriage. As an example, two elderly ladies whose husbands have departed this earth, finances are difficult, they decide to move in together. Should they have the right, regardless of what their intimacy level is, should they have the right to be able to visit one another and make decisions for one another in the hospital, share maybe share finances the way a married couple? Yeah, I think so. But can we as a society recognize that as something different and hold up and venerate something very precious and quite religious, the institution of marriage? And that's something that I'm asking my audience to just mull over. Rabbi, how long have you been married? We are coming up on... 49 years. Wow, almost a golden anniversary. And I'm going to assume that you've gone through the sickness and health, richer and poorer agreements and disagreements, or has it just been absolute marital bliss? Because after all, you're a man of the word. Yeah, you better ask my wife. I don't know what she's going to say. Sure, it hasn't been been marital bliss from day one. I got married at a time before you had all these great self-help books out and before people <laughs> realized, which some of us do realize now that marriage is something that takes really a lot of hard work and that people shouldn't just look for the romance and say, we'll make the commitment and then expect the pieces to fall in place. It takes a lot of hard work. Being, being religious certainly provides the motivation and allows you when you're disappointed to stick with it and say, God brought us together for a purpose and we're going to tough it out. And that's really the story. We got through the rough, we got through the rough patches as well. And we have eight children and uh, yeah. Uh, some grandchildren in there too. A few score <laughs> grandchildren in there as well. <laughs> and it's, that's uh, really glorious. Rabbi, I like in this conversation that we're having about marriage to the Hebrew month about this month, this evening that we're recording this interview will mark this fifth month on the Jewish calendar. And I liken it because it is characterized by a lot of difficulty. And as we go through life with our partner, with our spouse, there is difficulty. There are tragedies oftentimes, but there is also that celebration of marriage that God's given you a comforter, somebody there to console you, to be with you, to weather these storms together. So I think it's really appropriate that we talk about this month what it means, and how it ties into our life choices, including our marriages. And it's not for naught that in the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is always one of marriage, of a bride and a group, again and again, through the works of the prophets. There's something there that that resonated not only with human beings, but with God himself. Yes, there. That's a, it's a very astute observation, Michelle. For people who didn't get the the history behind it, you mentioned that both temples were destroyed on the same day, hundreds of years apart, of course, on the 9th of Av. The expulsion of the Jews from Spain took place on the 9th of Av in 1492. World War I, which essentially was both World War I and World War II, with a couple of years in between, started, started on a 9th of Av. And what this has meant to the Jewish people is precisely what you said, only maybe a little bit stronger, which is that 
that we recognize that you don't look to God just for the great things in life. And when things are going well, you say, wow, golly gee, I think I'm going to recite a couple of more hosannas and thank God. But when things go wrong, you say, well, that has nothing to do with God. There are unfortunately theologians, if you can call them that, in, in, in some denominations, both of Christianity and of non-traditional Judaism, that say God never does anything that we don't like. He just provides the good stuff. When things go wrong, that's just the way the world runs. And every now and then God chooses, chooses not to intervene or maybe doesn't even have the power to intervene. And what that does is it emasculates God. Maybe it's a strong word, but it basically turns God into Santa Claus, who just gives out lots of stuff. And when and the big danger of that is not just the theological error, it's that when God then disappoints and doesn't deliver the things that you want, and you say, I don't need God anymore. I'm not even sure I believe in him anymore. When you're sophisticated enough to recognize that God is God, responsible for all phenomena, as horrible as it sounds to look at evil and say, you're a good God. Why does that evil exist? It's better to leave that as an enigma and a conundrum rather than say, God has nothing to do with it. He's out of here. He doesn't, he's not connected with it. This was one of the great saving graces of, for the Jewish people who did not have a happy history for a couple of thousand years. But they were able to say that God hasn't abandoned us. He has his reasons, but this is all God. And, and the, the only way that things will work out in the long run is if we, if we work on that relationship with him. And we try to reestablish the relationship as one of the, the faithful young husband and wife to each other. And, but when we're not going to leave God out of the picture, even though we then have to wrestle so horribly with the problem of evil. But it's a worse mistake is to say that there's a good God and evil exists despite him. And he's powerless to do anything about it. He chooses not to, to get involved. That, I think, has a much worse effect on human I society. I agree. I would argue that it is on the contrary, that God uses all of those things in our lives to season us, to teach us. And we don't know how these pieces fall into place. These things that we look at just because they hurt. Man, my goodness, it hurts when you work out, but it makes your body stronger. It, it staves off of future health problems. We go through difficulty because yes, we are a fallen world, but God is so great. He is the only being that can utilize even the awful and the evil and the broken to make something beautiful. He gives beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for our mourning and our depression. God gives us a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we can be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified and that our lives might actually be better. And when we see that we can dwell in that secret, glorious place of the Most High Rabbi, I've found that even in those difficulties, there is peace, like being in the eye of the storm because you have a trust. You, God's got this. Somehow he's working these things out for good. And I'm just going to sit back and rejoice. Is that easy to be in that mindset? Absolutely, uncategorically, no. <laughs> but it is part of our learning process. And that applies to what marriage is as well. Putting a trust that, okay, God, you've got me, you've got my spouse, 
somehow you're going to help us to work through this, that you're going to help them be accountable. You're going to help me be accountable. And through this, we're going to have something greater and more beautiful. In, indeed. And there, there are times that not only isn't it easy, but it probably is impossible. See, the ninth of this ninth day of this month that we're starting today wasn't just the time that we reflect on the things in life that we don't like so much. We're talking about catastrophes that boggle the mind, the number of casualties, the brutality of the Roman legions when they sacked Jerusalem, the sheer number of people who were raped and maimed and, and, and died with huge casualty figures. The fact that the, that the Jews at the time were... The vast majority of them were, in a matter of years, exiled from their land, not to return for 2,000 years. Mm. We're talking, and we include this on the 9th of Av, when, which is our national day of mourning. And we talk about the auto de fe's in medieval Europe. And can you imagine standing by watching as family members were burnt alive at the stake no. in front of your eyes? No. That's not just a challenge. And I, I don't know how that makes that can make you stronger. But, but it can make but, you rely on God and know that there is something yes, beyond this life. And yes. that's really the bigger story, as, isn't it? As somebody once put it, to those who believe, there is at least the possibility of an answer. To those who don't believe, there are no answers. The world is a horrifying place, punctuated by, by, by moments of tranquility and sometimes even happiness. But basically, it's a pretty nasty, brutal, and short life. As was it was that Thomas Hobbes who said, but if you're, not, if you're not a believer, then all of the bad stuff is programmed into the nature of the universe. It will happen, and it has no meaning, and it has no purpose. And yes, sometimes you can steal yourself and use it as an opportunity for growth. Sometimes the horror is just so unspeakable but that... That's not going to happen. But when you believe in God, and you believe in a God who doesn't abandon the world and knows what he's doing, and the challenge to us is, are you going to still stay in my, my corner, even though I'm throwing all this stuff at you? And we say that, yes, because our faith in you, our knowledge of what you are and your centrality of the universe is such that there's nothing that you can do, no Holocaust, no Auschwitz. No Treblinka, no Mauthausen is going to tear us away from you. And to me, yeah, my mother was a survivor. She, she was deported from Germany as a 16-year-old, and she did survive the war with, with her mother. But I grew up with survivors and Holocaust stories, and that produced a lot of just frustration. What kind of world is this? Yeah. Now, I'm sitting here, just... 70 years after the Holocaust, and I look out at a city of Jerusalem that doesn't belong. It shouldn't exist by any of the laws of nature, by any of the laws of history. And I can't point to the exact connection between the two, but I can say nobody in Auschwitz could have imagined that a number of years later there would be a rebirth of the Jewish people in their land, in their biblical homeland, and that would, in the space of a couple of decades, manage to become, go from a third world country to a second world country to today, 
a world leader in so many areas, not a perfect society by any means, and not even a religious society, unfortunately, in, in much of the country, although we're in much, much better shape religiously than Jewish life any place on the face of the earth. But it just boggles, it boggles my imagination. Nobody back then could have conceived of such a thing. But God showed again that I'm not going to give you the answers. I'm not going to tell you where I was during Auschwitz, but I can tell you I had not abandoned the world and I had not abandoned my people, and this should be the proof of it. You're still left with the question, but you're not left with any question about where God was. And with that's where I want to bring our our program today to the conclusion that without God, nothing makes sense. And without God, marriage just really is a long-term hookup, essentially. But with God, things make sense. And with God, things have purpose and meaning. Even in a broken world, there is hope beyond what we have today. And that is the one thing that can keep us going through sickness and health richer and poorer, whatever it may be that we go through in life, because we have a God that we can connect with. And I am so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for you sharing that today. This has been especially meaningful to me today. And I just can't think, I'm sure it was for you as you're watching or listening or reading, but I'm going to tell you personally, even if this never aired, I am so blessed from this program today and your time today, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you for watching, listening, and being part of the program. I'm going to ask you to like, subscribe, and share. God bless you. More news and views at mymichellelive.com.